Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. We are starting a new series for the next six weeks. We will be in our D group readings uh, and in our messages on Sunday morning working through the rest of the Bible. The next, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, it's not up there on, I don't have the, the plan up there. We'll be working through Paul's letters for the next two or three, five weeks. We've got two weeks in Hebrews, one in Revelation. So the next three weeks, we'll be working through Paul's prison letters and then his pastoral epistles, uh, the letters he wrote from prison and then the letters that he wrote to Timothy and Titus, the, uh, which he may have written from prison as well, but they are two pastors in various places where Paul had started churches. And in all six of those messages, we will be looking at, we'll have the theme of, that's my Jesus. I intentionally wanted to end our D group reading this year on this type of note. Let's just spend six weeks getting to know Jesus better. And each one of those messages will uh, kind of like a, a diamond with an infinite number of facets. We will turn Jesus just a little bit and we'll see him in a different way as we look through those scriptures. This week we come to Ephesians 1, 20-23, our one king. And all the messages are going to have that title to it, our, our one something and and somewhere I have that written down too, but not up here with me. So you'll just have to wait and see it on Facebook on Wednesday or Thursday when I post the uh, sermon title or on Faith Life app, which you can download by scanning the QR code back there uh, on the banner. Did I do that right, Tom? Okay, thanks. Um, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 this morning, our one king, Paul is opening up his letter. He's greeting the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was arguably Paul's uh, greatest accomplishment. If we go back to Acts, that's where the, the magicians were, were burning their books because they were coming to Christ and they were doing it because they were hearing of other things that were being done, not even just hearing Paul, but, but it was spreading. The gospel spread in Ephesus was incredible. It was a, 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 a church that was doing well. Uh, when Paul writes them, he has some things to correct. Go figure, because it's made up of sinful people just like ours. Incidentally, you get to Revelation, and we're, when we go, we're only going to be in Revelation one week as in our reading we will read the letters. One of them he wrote to, John wrote to Ephesus based on his vision of the Lord. And Ephesus was having problems. And, and, and they were declining. And they weren't where they needed to be. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and, and one of you Bible scholars can correct me, I think Ephesus was the church where uh, they, John said, you've left your first love, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and it sounds like it's changing on my mic. Do I need to do anything, John, or am I just, just keep talking like, uh, okay, keep going. All right. Um, so Paul's writing this letter. They're doing good things now. He's encouraging them at the first of the letter like he does to all the churches he writes to, 
except for Galatians. And he's, he begins his, his letter. First, he, he has this doxology. Uh, he's blessed is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verses 3 through 14. Then in verse 15, he begins with a prayer. And, and in that prayer, he's praying for a couple of things. He prays that, the, that they will know the Lord, and he gives thanks for them. But in verse 19, he says, and I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He's praying that the church knows the immeasurable greatness of God's power, that they would know it not just intellectually, but they would know it experientially, relationally. They would know God's power because they have experienced God's power. And he's going to go on to tell them that the power that he's talking about here manifests itself in Jesus. That's where the power is seen. You want to see God's power, Paul says. You want to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Look at Jesus. The only one to, we, to whom we owe total complete, unequivocating allegiance. We, we pledge allegiance to a number of things. We pledge allegiance to our country. We pledge allegiance to uh, different groups. If, if you are uh, an al- alumnus of a, 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 a university, a college, and, and, and you are uh, a part of that alumni association, or if you are willing to drive to Omaha, Nebraska and spend two weeks watching the Bulldogs win the national championship, that is an allegiance. That's right. Hail State. Now, I can say this. Hold on before all of my LSU friends get mad at me. Remember, I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up a Mississippi State fan. I converted when, when I started LSU, okay? Well, a year or two after I started at LSU. I know, Jim, but, but, but it, it's not a full conversion because it's LSU and then, then Mississippi State, okay? So, it, it, so I can say, hail state. We pledge allegiance to a number of things. Maybe you're Kiwanis or, or Lions or, or whatever. We, we have these allegiances. We have these groups we're a part of, whatever makes us a part of that group. But our ultimate allegiance, our, the, 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 our total allegiance is only owed to Jesus, where our country or our university or our civic organization or whatever group veers from Scripture, our convention, our state convention, our local association, we only owe allegiance to Jesus. That is where we owe it all. And as Paul begins, most of your English translations here in verse 20, well, have a period at the end of verse 19 and a a new sentence at Verse 20, as a matter of fact, he is, is this a continuation of the same sentence? Uh, verses, starting in verse 15 or so, uh, it's all one sentence that keeps going, but the thought is separate. And he's using 
a reference, and I want to read this for you from Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. He's going to expand on this psalm. He's alluding to it and then expanding on it where uh, the, David wrote, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, the Lord to my Lord, God to Jesus, though David didn't quite understand it that way at the time. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Paul picks up that theme as he moves into Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Let's read that passage together. I think I got it out of order there, Judy. Um, uh, but uh, if you can get to the, the, pa- the verse, that's, that's what we're going to do next. There we go. Uh, my apologies on that. Verse 20. He, God, he's talking about, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, has, he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. If you want to see the power of God, Paul is saying, if you want to see the immeasurable greatness of God's power, look at Jesus. Well, how do we see God's power when we look at Jesus? Oh, I've got, what, six? Yeah, probably if I can count. Six ways we see God's power in Jesus. First, we see it exercised, we see the power exercised in his authority over death in verse 20. His authority over death. He exercised, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. In the Trinitarian Godhead, they, they both did it, all three did it, because the three persons are inseparable yet distinct. So they all three were involved in the raising of Christ from the dead. But what Paul says here, in order to make a distinction just in the power of God exemplified in Christ, he says that God exercised the power in Christ by raising Christ from the dead. Here we see that death is now defeated. When, when Jesus died, and Paul will say this elsewhere, that if Jesus just died and he, he didn't rise from the dead, then we're all morons because we're telling this story, but we are, he says, greatly to be pitied. The, the, we're the most pitied bunch of people in the world if we only preached Christ crucified, but there were no resurrection. But there was a resurrection. And in resurrecting Christ, in uh, using, exercising his power to raise Christ, then God showed authority, showed Christ's authority over death, and defeated it. The most powerful enemy we have. The most relentless enemy we have, and the enemy to which we will most certainly 
fall is death. No decision you make today or tomorrow or last week, no precaution you will take can stop it. You may, by certain actions, postpone it. You may put it off for a long time. I remember uh, there was a lady here about, uh, oh, just a handful of years ago, three or four years ago, in Texas, I believe, who lived to be 104, 5, 6, something like that. I can't remember. And they asked her what her secret to longevity was, because they always want to know, how'd you get that old? And the, tr- the correct answer to that question is always, well, I didn't die yet. That's how you got to be that old. But her answer was, well, I drink three Dr. Peppers a day. I just assume she's a Texan because that's a very Texan answer. If she had said, and I eat brisket, then I would have known totally she's a Texan. But nonetheless, whether her Dr. Peppers added to her longevity or if she would make it to 120 if she hadn't had any Dr. Peppers, I don't know. The point is, she's going to die. Death will pursue us, and death will catch us at some point. And it never, and there's nothing we can do to stop that, to, to get in the way of that, or to end its pursuit. But what Jesus has done, what God did through Christ in raising him from the dead... We see, we observe, as we study Scripture and we look back at that moment in history around 35-ish, 37-ish, or 33-ish, or whatever, A.D., when they got up that morning and the ladies went to the tomb and it was empty. What happened that morning was that the king of life denied death its power. He didn't deny death its reality. The reality is, we're going to die. Drink all the Dr. Pepper you want, you're going to die. Drink diet Dr. Pepper, Dr. Pepper Zero, cherry Dr. Pepper Zero, you're going to die. Does not matter. But death does not have the victory. Death does not have the power. In Christ, we can say, not, I'm going to die, but I'm going to die. One day, Paul will say later, to live is Christ, to die is gain. As long as I'm here, it's all about Jesus. I said this before, y'all. Y'all should be able to almost quote this with me. As long as I'm here, it's all about Jesus. And if I die, you know who it's about? Jesus. So the the power of death, the authority of death is gone. Jesus took that when he rose from the grave. So we no longer fear it. We are free from the fear of death. We are free from the stranglehold of death. And we are certainly free from the spiritual death that comes after we die, if we don't know Jesus, when we are eternally separated from God, there is the death we should fear if we haven't trusted Christ yet. And there is the death we should war against in the lives of our friends and family members who don't know Jesus. They are right to be afraid of death because for them... 
I've said this before too, and I'm not the first one to say it. For those who die in Christ, this earth is the only heaven they'll ever know. Sorry, for those who die without Christ, this earth is the only heaven they'll ever know. For those who die in Christ, this earth is the only hell we'll ever know. The authority, the power of death has been taken away. Jesus has the authority over death. The king of life denies death, its power. The second thing we see is the authority of relationship. God exercised this power over Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. What does that mean literally? I don't know. Like, is Jesus right now sitting on the right hand hand side of God on a throne that was made for him? Maybe. I don't know. That's not the point. What we see here when uh, God raises him from the dead and seats him there is Jesus' authority of relationship. He is God. He is, in this case, as the image that Paul uses is the image and the position of vice-regent, co-kings, the, the ones who rule together. Normally, this position would go to a son. It would be an older king who is not dead yet, but he's kind of stepped back and allowed the son to do much of the ruling so that they are co-regents, the, the, the king gets to go play golf more while the, the, the son, the, the co-regent, has to make all the hard decisions. And the son's calling the dad saying, hey, I got a hard one. I'm going this way or this way. And, and, and the dad on the golf course says, yeah, me too. Whatever you do is fine. I'm going with the nine iron. And that's it. And, and, and that's the idea of co-regents. Now, God's not all go- playing golf while Jesus does all the work. Please don't spread on Facebook that that's what I said. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in this co-regency, this position of sonship, we are actually seeing not the slow retirement of the king in order for the son to rule, but the equality of the king, the the father, with the son. Co-regency, one and the same. Jesus is equal with God and rules with him. He raised him from the dead, brought him to life, and seated him, and said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Three years before the crucifixion, three years before the resurrection, But in putting him in that place, he shows that. He exalts Jesus, showing this exaltation to us all through Scripture after the humiliation of death. Authority over death. Authority of relationship. God ruling over death, taking away its power, taking away its authority, authority, raising Jesus and then putting him in the position, not only says to death, you didn't win, but your embarrassment, your 
your, your, your cunning way, your, your idea that you have something on my people, my son, my children, my church. No, you got nothing. I am embarrassing you. You did this to him. Look what I just did to him, death. I exalted him. I kicked your tail and then rubbed your nose in it. I mean, that's, that's what he did. We see our one king, the king of heaven, God the Father, share his authority with the king of kings, God the Son. Authority of relationship. We see authority of our one king over enemies. Verse 21 he has seated him, this is, all kind of, this is all the same sentence, he seated him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given. This is authority over enemies. It, it's debated whether this passage is talking purely about heavenly authorities, demons, angels, that sort of thing, or whether it is talking about earthly rulers, earthly principalities. It goes back and forth depending on who you read. Does it matter? Not really. What does matter, though, is the context is always talking about enemies in this situation. It is not just that Jesus is the king over the unfallen angels, but it is the ones who would war against him. That's the idea in Psalm 110.1, that the king has been set up. The, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, your enemies are your footstool. That's the whole idea here. God is saying to the Son, your enemies are now your footstool. You are above Satan. He always was, but this is the visible representation of that. This is God saying, see, told you so. You are above Satan, the enemy that put you on the cross, that thought he had you until three days later, and Satan got up like everybody else that morning, and this tomb was empty. Oh, mess, what are we going to do now? Well, you're just going to lose now until Jesus comes back. That's, that's what you're going to do. Over him, over his demonic ploys, over all that they would do. We saw the power of Jesus over demons throughout his ministry. But also, above earthly rulers, no entity, no government, no physical or spiritual group takes the place of Jesus in our lives. Nor do they have the authority to do anything in our lives. They don't have the authority to ruin us. They may have the, I've got to choose my words carefully here, they may have, they may take the opportunity to kill us. The U.S. may not always be a land of freedom. As a matter of fact, I'm going to just go on record here right now as guaranteeing it won't. Every kingdom has fallen. The U.S., a different kingdom, a better kingdom than most, may probably all, I'd say all, but it will fall. Why? Because we are fallen. 
and, and, and some point down the road, the U.S. will fall. And it might be that Jesus comes back before that. It might be that there are multiple kingdoms that rise and fall, rise and fall until he comes back. I have no clue. The timetable of the Lord is not based on U.S. presidential elections. But what I do know is that it doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter what kingdom is uh, ruling. It doesn't matter what comes against us physically, what comes against us emotionally. Nothing can come against us spiritually. These are the enemies of our faith, whether spiritual or physical, and Jesus has authority over them. God has given him that authority, placed him in the position of authority as co-regent, put everything under his feet, and by everything, I mean everything. So we see in this short phrase that the king of kings entertains no rival to nor usurper of his authority. There is no power greater than Jesus. There is nothing, nothing and no one that is not under the feet of Jesus. That means you, that means me, that means dictators, that means presidents, that means churches. But that's just a second. But we always see, also see, rather, authority over time. Far above every ruler and authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has authority over time. Now, if you think too hard about time, you'll hurt your head. Okay, I'm just telling you. If you think about the fact that God is timeless and therefore created time, and that's why he has no beginning, time had a beginning, and he has no end, but time has an end, because it is a creation of God. That's why he is outside of time. He chooses to work in time with us, sending his son at just the right time, etc., etc. But nonetheless, he is outside of time. If your head doesn't hurt a little bit already, I'm not doing it right. So we don't get hung up on defining time, but we do need to understand that Jesus has authority over time. Does time wear us out? Yes. I know that there are some of you in here that are older than me. But after doing some of those dances, and, and I'm sorry, choreographies, for the VBS songs, interpretive movements, as we uh, euphemistically call them in the Baptist church, I realize how old I am when I get up the next morning and I can't walk on my right heel because it hurts so bad. Time has its effect, right? We're all going to die in a certain amount of time. But time has no authority. Time may take our bodies, it will, Time may take our minds. Boy, it's working on me already. Time may take our motivation, 
our psyche, our, even our will sometimes, time cannot touch our soul. We are immortal in Christ. We're immortal whichever way it goes. Our souls are. And we will live forever with Jesus or we will live forever apart from him. But this is Jesus' authority over time. It's actually a reference to Jesus' return. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians because everybody thought, there were people saying, y'all, we missed Jesus coming back. It's over now. He's, not, he's gone. He's done it. And Paul's, no, 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 no. Y'all are thinking of time in the wrong way. He, he will tell them that, that a thousand years or a day, it's, it's, it's the same. It makes no difference to the power of Christ. Christ is not late. Christ is not early because Christ is the authority over time. Anything and everything, the good and the bad, will pass away. Jesus will not. It's taken longer to rebuild than we would have liked. But Jesus is all, eh. y'all, it's just days, it's just weeks, it's just months. There's an eternity con to concern ourselves with. Jesus is not fretting because insurance companies are slow to send insurance checks. Jesus is not fretting that we can't get a roof put on. Jesus is not up there wondering, well, what's First Baptist Sulphur going to do now? They don't have a roof on their children's building because Jesus is the authority over time. The king forever. Our king forever is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, Jesus. Do you think he is worried about time? The correct answer is no. He's the authority over time. He has authority of position in verse 22. And here's where the new sentence actually begins in Paul's original letter. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head. Authority of position. So we've got the authority of relationship. He is co-regent with Jesus. We've already talked about that everything is under him. Uh, under his authority, subjected under everything under his feet, and now we are talking about he is appointed as head over everything. This is his position over it all. This actually recalls Psalm 8, verse 6, which I'll read for you. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Paul doesn't bother to give us the reference here and cite the fact that he's quoting the psalm, but it's okay. He lets us know that everything that Jesus does is, or everything that is, is under Jesus. He's, he's, he's making a lot of points here with this one little phrase. Part of it is the fact that the devil may have had his way in the garden, he, he won that battle. He brought sin into the world 
through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Demons may have tormented and distressed and caused disruption. Rulers may have and still slaughter their people and other people's. Princes may debauch and degrade, and they do, and all of these things continue. And I just lost my screen. There we go. All of these things continue, but what Paul is saying here is that all of those things in the past are just that in the past. Their influence is in the past. And here's where we need to have the perspective of Jesus, in particular the fact that he is the authority over time. When Jesus looks at our tomorrow, our next week, our next month or next year, he does not see what is coming. He, he sees what already is. Again, it'll hurt your head. One of the best ways I've heard it described, and I think this was C.S. Lewis that, that said it to begin with, was it's like J Jesus, God, uh, they are outside of the book, the same way you read a book, and you can go to any page in that book, and the action is happening at that moment. You can read what's going on in that world at that time. And if you flip to the back, suddenly you're there. Now, the, the, the motion of uh, uh, the, the, the progression of time in that book was unchanged. It was un, uh, it didn't, suddenly the people didn't wake up the next day and they were five chapters or ten chapters or whatever. They, they still had all those chapters in between, but the one reading the book knew what was going to happen and can see it. All analogies, especially about God and his sovereignty and Jesus and their omnipotence and omniscience and all that, they all break down. So wherever I said anything just then that was heretical, forgive me, it wasn't intentional. But they, he sees things differently. So we're worried and concerned about tomorrow and the next day. But all of that is under Jesus' feet too. All of that is under him. He has, he has been, uh, it has been subjected under his feet. The past influence is gone and the future concern is gone. The curse of Adam, where Adam lost his ability to properly subdue the earth. You will toil the rest of your life to fight the encroachment of the creation on your work. That has been perfectly achieved by Jesus. The second Adam now has authority of position. All things are under him including the earth, including subduing the earth, including stupid hurricanes, all under his feet. The government that Isaiah said would be on his shoulders, and I'm honestly not 100% certain what that means. Does that mean he carries the government, or does that mean the government's crushing him? Either way, doesn't matter. Where is it now? Under his feet. All authority. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority. 
on heaven and earth has been given to me. All of it. It's under his feet. Everything means everything, and that means everything we go through. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your situation in life is right now. I don't know the struggle. I don't know the family struggle. I don't know the financial struggle. I don't know the, the physical struggle. I don't, I don't know what it is that you are going through right now. But I do know where it is. I don't know what, but I know where. You want to know where it is? It's under Jesus' feet. He has the authority of position over everything, and that includes our situation. The king over all, the king over everything, is the one through whom the creative word passed. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Nothing was created that has been created except through him. The king overall is the one through whom the creative word passed, on whom the iniquity of us all was placed, around whom the earth wrapped in death, but onto whom it could not hold, and under whom everything now is subjugated. Everything came against him, and you know what one None of it. It all lost. And is now subjugated, subjected to him, his authority under his feet. And that includes the church. Second half of verse 22. And appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. With everything under his feet, that means that he is the head. And actually, you would say, well, he's the whole body. But in fact, though the church falls under his rule and should by all rights be under his feet, we know in fact that we as the church have the privilege and the responsibility as his body. The, the metaphors are mixed just a little bit here. He is the head except everything's under his feet, but he is also the head of us. Paul says he's actually a gift to the church. And appointed him is one way that, that is phrased. Other translations would say, and gave him as head over everything, to rule the church. He is the head of our church. He is the gift to us as his church, for our benefit and for his use as his body. If he's the head, we're the body. Various members ideally working in harmony. Paul's going to go on to say in Ephesians 2, 15 through 16, that ethnic barriers are broken down, that there's no distinction among the body. We are a revelation, I believe it's 7-9, where we see all nationalities, all people coming together, all people who have trusted him, not universalism, everybody's going to be saved, all people who have trusted him coming before the throne. That is the glorious picture of his body with him as the head. We as his body, we as his church, 
experience him defeating the powers of evil that would come against us. Remember, it's all under his feet. And we are his body. So where does that put everything for the church? Under his feet. Under the church's feet. Now this is not an admonition to rule as tyrants and to uh, berate the culture and go on tirades. What it is for us to do is to realize that no matter how the world comes against us, the gates of hell will not prevail. We have defeated We can defeat the powers of evil because he is head of the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 2, 6 tells us that. We just talked about 1, 22, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. It says, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. In some way, we sit with Jesus because we're the body at the right hand of the Father. We talked about Romans 16, 20 last week, where God will crush Satan, the, the divisive ones in the church. And then Paul makes this sort of odd statement, which is difficult to translate and even more difficult to understand, where he says, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The fullness who fills is actually exactly how it's translated. What we see here, what Paul is getting at, is that Christ fills the church. As his body, he fills us. He he's fills each one of us, therefore, individually, therefore he fills the church. He is the focus and purpose of the church. He is the focus and purpose of his people. And God fills Christ. Jesus will say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And we're left going, how? And he says, just no. That I am the fullness of God and we are the fullness of Christ. We are filled with him. He is filled with God. And we are, he will say elsewhere, in him. In his uh, high priestly prayer at the end of the Gospel of John. There's a unity. Christ, God, the church, the church members, the body, the parts coming together. The king of the church, the one and only high shepherd, the one who walks among the lampstands, John is going to say at the beginning of Revelation, is the only king we serve and worship. And it is to his kingdom that we belong and owe first allegiance. He is our king. To be a part of that kingdom, though, you actually have to make him your king. In VBS, the phrase we use is making the boss of your life. I believe that's what we use in Awana, too. Is that right, Amy? There's Kids Beach Club, that's right, Kids Beach Club. Make him the boss of your life. Make him the king of your life. Or as we're going to sing here in just a few minutes, make him the king of your heart. Your one king.
your one true king. How do I make him the king of my heart? Well, you admit that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, that, that you are you're an enemy of Christ. Outside of Christ, you're his enemy. And you say, well, I've never done anything against him. Yeah, you have. You, you've disobeyed. You are an enemy of God. That is the way sin is portray portrayed throughout Scripture. You are an enemy of Christ. And you need to admit that. I, you, you've got to admit you need to be saved before you can be saved. It, it, it's, it's a recognition on your part. And then you believe that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the King with, all the, with the authority over death and the authority over sin and authority over time and, and ultimately with the authority over your life. Because when you come to Jesus and say, I want to make you my King, you don't then get to go and say, but for a while, I want to live in another kingdom, and I want to serve that king, whatever that king is, and whatever that king wants me to do. And usually that king means me, or queen. You serve him, and him alone. And that means tomorrow's not yours, and next week's not yours, next month isn't yours, and you're worried about all these times, and what's going to happen, and God, uh, God says, I have given my son authority over time. You don't worry about that. You don't worry about what you're going to do. You follow him. You make him the king. The servants don't concern themselves with tomorrow. The king will tell them what to do tomorrow. And then you choose to make Jesus your savior. You choose to follow him. You choose not just to say you're my king, but you are my king forever. I'm giving you my life. I'm trusting you to save me from my sins, to forgive me that the work of the cross that was completed then will now be completed and or fulfilled in my heart today. That is how you make Jesus the king of your heart, whether you're right here live with me, you're watching at home, live, or somewhere down the road, you can make Jesus the king of your heart today, and I pray you would. Pray with me. God, thank you that all authority is yours and you have given all authority to your son and you never took it from him, he never lost it, but you have shown us through your word, through vivid imagery, that we serve the king of the universe. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the, the king of kings and lord of lords, we serve him. And that is the work you have done to save us. You have used that authority. You've sacrificed your son. But God, you have raised him from the dead and now set him at your right hand. And Lord, I pray for all from your people and from people who aren't your people yet. That they would see and be amazed at our one king. Lord, I pray that you would make, you would draw us, draw the lost and the unbeliever back to you, or to you, to be saved, to experience salvation, to make you their king. Lord, I pray that you would work on the hearts of believers today who have served another kingdom for far too long, who, who have their membership, who have their citizenship, but they have gone to other rulers Lord, you would say in your Old Testament that, that we have prostituted ourselves 
to other kingdoms. Lord, bring us back to serve you and you alone. May we be citizens first, owing allegiance first and fully to you and to your authority. All the th while thanking you that we live in a place where we can give full allegiance to you without fear of retribution. God, thank you for our ble that your blessings on our lives, and I pray again for those who have never made you the king of their hearts, that they would do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, if you have a decision you'd like to make today, I pray that you would do that. that. If you need to just stand there or kneel there where you are as we sing, do that. If you'd like to talk to somebody, uh, Tom is in the back. He would love to pray with you. If you'd like to accept Christ as Savior, if you've done that in the past couple of weeks, but you want to let everybody know about that, you can do that this morning. If you want to join our church and, and want to talk to somebody about how to do that, Tom's back there. That, that's what you can do. You can grab somebody else, one of our leaders, one of our deacons. There'll be a couple standing back there with him. But you need to respond. Maybe you need to be baptized. You need to recommit. You need to join our church. Do that. Let us know on Facebook by messenger. Send us an email. Let us rejoice with you as you make Jesus the king of your heart today. Let's stand and let's sing. And let's do business with him.